Blog Talk Radio. I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with our producer, Marty Oakley. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us this evening. Towards the end of the program, if we have time, we will accept calls. A little background for some of our listeners who may not be aware, Hospice was founded in 1967 by Cicely Saunders, and its purpose was to minimize pain and suffering of the actively dying It was never meant for those who could be treated, and it was never meant to drug someone into a coma and hasten their death with toxic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. But sadly, that is what is happening. I used to say not all hospices are bad, and perhaps they're not, but I sure can't tell you which ones aren't. I know of one, which is a pro-life, Delta Hospice in Canada, but it was shut down because they refused to euthanize patients. So what does that say? I want to be clear. I don't think anybody should be in pain. And if someone is actively dying and you want to give them enough morphine, Ativan, fentanyl, or whatever toxic drug that you could give them that will put them into a coma, it should be discussed with honesty about what the drug will do and let them know they'll go into a coma. And if they say, yep, that's what I want, then they make that choice. But the fact is, our loved ones are not making the choice to die. It is being made by hospice, and yes, sometimes by family members. But when did taking away someone's choice as to how, when, and where they die become someone else's right to make for them? It is called premeditated murder, and it is being condoned under the guise of compassionate hospice care. Last week, I talked about the criteria to enroll in hospice. So tonight, I want to talk about the promises that hospice makes to get someone to enroll. People are being lulled into a false sense of care provided by hospice. They make promises they don't keep. As a former hospice respiratory therapist, Michelle Young-Dewers describes in her book, The Truth of Hospice. It is appropriately titled, Killing for Profit, the Dark Side of Hospice, and it is an eye-opener. You will be shocked by some of the stories this warrior reveals. Usually, I quote from Vitus.com, which is a large hospice, but this week I ran across another hospice site, hospiceotp.org, and they share what they can do for the patient. Most sites say approximately the same things, but I wanted to share it with you tonight what they say and what my comments of what I have witnessed and heard from other victims' family. These are the services they offer. 
physicians who can make house calls and are experts in pain and symptom management. I have never heard anybody say that a doctor made a house call, and typically it's about pain management, even if the person isn't in pain, and they give a one-size-fits-all toxic cocktail. They say nurses make weekly visits, coordinate the patient's care with their physician, and organize their medications. I have heard many complaints that the people's regular physician is completely left out of any discussion, and often they have no clue the patient is even enrolled in hospice. And what about that organizing medications? How about stop giving the patient all of their regular medications and add their own toxic cocktail? So you're stopping medications for heart, kidney, Parkinson's, blood pressure, whatever the disease is, and you think that is going to help a patient? How stupid do they think we are? But we listen to them because we don't know any better. We trust them. They say social workers who can address emotional financial, and legal concerns. Has anybody ever had a social worker discuss with you your emotional, financial, or legal concerns? Not that I'm aware of. Certified nursing assistants who can provide baths and light housekeeping. I am aware that CNAs do sometimes do these things, but my mom's CNAs were either not physically capable or just set behind her playing on their phone most of the time. We hired a separate person to give mom her baths and do like housekeeping. They say that volunteers who can run errands, make visits, and do haircuts. Again, I'm not aware of any CNA volunteer coming out and doing anything other than maybe visiting, never running errands or haircuts. Nutritionalist. Again, I have no knowledge of this. They say they will provide a physical, occupational, speech, and massage therapist. I am not aware of this ever happening. No one has ever said to me that these were offered to them. The only thing they do is do pain management. And they are very clear about telling you, we don't treat anything. We are not here to treat and provide that. We are here until the person passes. That's what their job is. They say they provide chaplains to provide spiritual support, and they provide bereavement counseling. After a family loses a loved one and you realize hospice was responsible, do you really want their staff to comfort you? We didn't with my mom. This hospice site says they provide an additional level of support to improve the quality of life. How is drugging a person into a coma, ignoring bed sores, UTIs, and hastening their death with toxic drugs, starvation, and dehydration improving their quality of life? They further state they have an inpatient facility which offers a place of respite when caregivers need a break. I can attest to this one. My mom was intentionally murdered in a respite facility in Georgia and it was their intent from the get-go when they tricked my parents into going there. And all hospice ads encourage you to enroll sooner so they can help you. As for me, no thank you. 
I think I'll choose to live longer and avoid them altogether. So for my listeners out there, if you have experienced what I have just shared with you about hospice offers and what you have experienced, please let me know. It's a huge scam to make money off of our loved ones and hasten their death in a cruel way. Smoke and mirrors. Again, this is not what hospice was intended to be. I'd like to give you some helpful resources, as I do each time. The book I mentioned earlier, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, by Michelle Young Doers, is an excellent resource to see the truth behind those closed hospice doors. Halovoice.org advocates for the rights of the medically vulnerable. They have a helpline, 888-221-4256. If you have questions or concerns, if your loved one is in a facility, or if you are considering putting them in hospice. If you are aware of the dangers and you want to help, they're always looking for volunteers. They have a legal life-affirming medical proxy document you can download and alter to fit your needs, um, as well as a do not donate organ card to keep with your license. Another resource is Ron Panzer, a hospice nurse whistleblower who wrote Stealth Euthanasia, Health Care Tyranny, and it can be downloaded for free because he wants people to see the truth and protect their loved ones. LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org has access to pro-life attorneys in most states if you're trying to get your loved one out of a bad situation. Euthanasia Prevention Coalition is another excellent resource. They have one in the USA and one in Canada. There's a Facebook group, Murdered by Hospice, and people have had experience with hospice betrayal firsthand, and to this site you're able to go and express your grief with people who understand, and we provide resources in our Files tab that is very helpful. Our goal is to warn people before their loved one is a victim of hospice. Fulton J. Sheen said it best, The refusal to take sides on great moral issues is itself a decision. It is a silent acquiescence to evil. The tragedy of our time is that those who believe in honesty lack fire and conviction while those who believe in dishonesty are full of passionate conviction. Which will you choose to be? Silence is not golden when people's lives are at stake. Always remember, knowledge is power. Our guest speaker tonight is a member of Murder by Hospice. Suzette Houston Heathcote lost both of her parents within 18 months. Keep in mind, as she tells us the story, that it is important who you choose as your medical power of attorney and how sometimes, even then, that person is bypassed. Suzette's dad, George Houston, at the age of 81, died on January the 12th, 2021, and her mom, Annette, on July the 6th, 2022. So she is still trying to deal with the grief that is often overwhelming. Suzette, I'd like to turn it over to you and let you tell us the tragic story of your parents, beginning with their health issues, and what caused hospice to come into your life. So will you walk us through this journey? Sure. 
So I'm Suzette, and I'm the eldest of four children, and my parents were George and Annette. Um, Both of them had a lot of health issues that they had been champions of conquering throughout their whole life. Um, My dad, he had Parkinson's. He had beat prostate cancer five years before. He had diabetes. Um, His PSA was zero for six years in a row. So um, the prostate cancer wasn't bothering him. Um, But uh, my dad was in a nursing home situation because he was six foot five. My mom was five foot two. um, And my mom couldn't lift him when he fell and needed help. And she had enough to take care of with her own health issues. So managing her health issues, she also had diabetes. Um, They were both on insulin. And um, helping him and assisting him, um, it's pretty tragic when you are six foot five and you are locked in a rigid body with Parkinson's. Um, you need a lot of help, maybe five, ten minutes all day long here and there, um, but it's not something where she can make a phone call and somebody comes unless it's an emergency. So my dad needed to leave the independent living part of the um senior facility that they were living in. Um, They had been living in a one-bedroom apartment for about four or five years together. Um, And when my dad's care got too strong, um, we had to move him into another place. Um, My dad ended up having a stroke, and it was a visual stroke. Um, And he ended up taking himself in the hall and calling my brother, asking for some medical attention. Um, So he had a hospital stay um, because of the stroke in his fall. And when he returned... He had um, people come into the apartment on a daily basis to um, give him assistance like 16 hours a day. Um, That didn't work really well. It was only a one-bedroom apartment, and it was my mom's place of living. They have a small dog named Rosie as well. So it didn't really work well with somebody coming in and trying to reorganize their furniture and reorganize their their schedule and their plan. And... Eventually, my dad had to um, leave and go to um, skilled floor nursing, um, which was available at the same complex that they were in. So when he got to the skilled floor nursing, um, he had to go because he wasn't able to manage his insulin very well with his vision issues. Um, And we could tell by his history on the meter and by listening to the meter on a video camera that we had set up that he was having high sugars, and um, he needed to go somewhere where they could keep his blood sugar under 400 um, and put him in a better situation. So um, he lasted in still for nursing for a while, and then he, um, they said that uh, he was stabilized and he could qualify for memory care, which would be a little less price than skilled for nursing. So he moved into memory care, and... Uh, Once he got into memory care, um, he was with a lot of people that weren't able to speak for themselves. There was a couple of talkers, as they would call them. Uh, But um, memory care, uh, there was terrible diabetes management. And um, COVID came in. They turned off his video camera. They were doing communal dining, despite the fact they were announcing on their website, all communal dining finished on March 17th. But as of April 2nd, they were still doing communal dining and dinner was taking two hours because they only had a couple people to serve all of them, and people were getting ill at the table, and it was a well-known fact that they had an outbreak of COVID. Um, What they ended up doing, like in my dad's row, um, 
all the memory care people were being put into hospice and nobody could come visit them. And so my dad, um, he was on a scooter and he was going into all the rooms of his friends and he said on the first day they were in hospice, they would, um, you know, stop giving them food and water and visitors. And on the third day, he said they'd play the funeral music. So he knew that that would be their last day. So he would go into their rooms and he would let them hear a friendly voice of his to um, say goodbye to them. And he would recite the Lord's Prayer. um, And that was a prayer that meant a lot to him and to me and helped me through his funerals as well, Um, especially about the part of, uh, you know, forgive um, others' trespasses against you and they know not what they have done. Um, But my dad went around in giving last rites to all his friends and he um, he got lucky because I got laid off from work and I called my dad and said, Dad, I'm not working. Can I come get you? And he said, yes. I dared not ask anybody, but if you can come get me, please. So on April 2nd, I went and picked up my dad. Um, he left there with a backpack he packed himself and his pajamas, and I had nothing else. I had no clothes, nothing. I had one vial of insulin, and I had some pill packs. So... Um, I took him home, and he told me how he had been giving everybody last rites, and um, then I knew he was fully exposed, um, and he wasn't getting any PPE, and um, he was in danger because of his diabetes. He was also in danger because of being exposed in in the building. So um, for the first 17 days he was at my house, I sent my family to another home. So it was just me and my dad, and I became a full-time nurse. I was giving him eight shots a day, and... I had to figure out how to do everything. Um, I did not have a shower in the first floor, so that was interesting how to, um, you know, to keep him um, showered. But I was doing better than the, the nursing home was on that. Um, but so for 17 days, I just nonstop, 24 hours a day, um, I went to bed with my clothes on so I could jump up at a moment's notice and go help him before he got himself in trouble. He was trying so hard to do stuff by himself, but he was getting in trouble doing that. Um, But uh, after 17 days, my family moved back, um, and we ended up having a more normal summer. Um, I took him to some of his uh, doctor's appointments. At that point, some of them were remote. remote. Um, But he never had a hospital visit or an emergency the whole time he lived with me. Um, And we would go out every Monday looking for a place for him to possibly pick to live because eventually I was going to get a new job, and um, we thought this COVID would would go over, but um, especially on Monday mornings, we go by the nursing homes and we could see which ones would have dumpster overflow, and we would see the ones with the um, ambulance out front. And I mean, one place that my mom picked out for him, she didn't know better, but um, it was the one closest to her. Um, we watched him take two bodies out in two different ambulances, and my dad's like, "Nope, I don't want to stay here." <laughs> no kidding. His room would have been overlooking the um, the pickup spot for the ambulances, too, because I don't want watching red lights and my friends walking out like that, you know. So um, eventually um, he found somebody that he had known since the day she was born. He, used, he knew the father of this woman, and um, she said, I will take care of him. Um, I will, I'll be on the inside. I'll take care of him. And my dad's like, if I ever have a chance, I... I have a chance here because I have somebody on the inside that will make sure I get what I need. Unfortunately, it was a newer place. It only had like a dozen people there. And then when they brought my dad in, they brought 12 new people in. And then the staff was all quitting. 
And there, I mean, we're talking director of nursing, we're talking um, everybody but the handyman. Um, he had a gorgeous room, we called it his James Bond apartment. Um, but uh, like, there was no screens, he was getting bug bites, um, he didn't get showers. Um, and the handyman was the one that was coming in and changing his catheter because he says they're all gone, nobody's here. Um, and, uh, you know, people who would come in and, you know, we couldn't go in because it was COVID, that kind of thing. Um, but it just kept getting worse and worse. And my dad was in the same clothes four and five days in a row. Um, he was trying to do his own laundry. Um, he, he wasn't getting the support he needed at all. And this was a very expensive place. Um, so now this is, uh, this is in August of, ni- of 2020, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. All right. So, um, Another reason my dad went into the nursing home was because um, both he and I needed to have um, kidney stones taken care of. I had three that I needed to have surgically removed, and my dad had one huge one that needed to be surgically removed. So he told me, I'll go into this place, you go have your surgery, then I'll have my surgery, and we'll see how we do from there. So you go get taken care of first and heal, and then I'll have my surgery. So that's what we did. I went and I had my surgery. But um, when I had my surgery, I was on the gurney going into surgery, and I looked at the video camera, and I saw my dad screaming on the floor. And um, I called every phone number. All of them weren't taking answers. Nobody was answering. Nobody was picking up. Um, I called my brother. He drove over there. Um, He ended up driving my dad to the emergency room. Um, But the reason was that my dad had been injured, um, and I played back earlier in the morning, and I don't know, about 5 in the morning, they came in to get him ready for the day, and um, he had a little knob on his scooter, and sometimes it pops off, and it popped off, and he's like, my knob, my knob, it's going to hurt me, my knob, my knob, and she's like, forget about your knob, and um, she was getting his bed ready, and he was standing up, and he was shaking because he's got Parkinson's, and it's girly, and she ended up spinning him around and sitting him down on the screw that had the missing knob, and it pierced him. And my dad was yelping in pain, get me off of this thing. You're piercing me. I'm bleeding. Help, help. And he was screaming. And she just stood back and said, sorry, sir. Stitches, get stitches. Your daughters have been complaining. It's not fair to us. And he finally, she picked him up and put him in the wheelchair. And he just had underwear on and, um, and a little T-shirt. And uh, he's like, give me a towel. I'm bleeding. What are we going to do next? What's the plan? And she walked out of the room, turned off the light, and left him to be found by the next staff on the next shift. And I'm on the gurney going into surgery looking at this, you know? Yeah. So my dad ended up going into the emergency room, and then um, when he got done with five days there, it was time for me to take out my own stent. And when I took out my stent at home alone, um, my husband was home, it didn't flow. So I was in an emergency situation because my um, pressure was building up in my kidney. So I had to be rushed to the hospital. I spent the day in the hospital. So that was the day my dad got released from his five-day stay. And then my sister took him and initiated him into a new nursing home. And um, that's how we ended up in a, another nursing home. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to pay like a $3,000 move-in fee and all this kind of stuff. So He's like, well, let me just try this place out. Maybe they've got their act together. They're a mature place that's been around for a while. And it didn't turn out to be that way either. Um, 
But eventually he had to go have a kidney stone surgery, and he had seen his doctor, and his doctor cleared him, and he signed himself out into the surgery. Um, They cleared him for the surgery, um, but the next day I knew that he was going to have trouble because it was assisted living. It wasn't a nursing home, and um, I was afraid that they wouldn't give him water and they wouldn't help him get to and from the bathroom and this stuff. So we couldn't go in, and um, so I advocate for essential care for people like that. Um, but uh, I, we had an outside company that was coming in and serving his catheter. So I asked them if they could provide a, like a visiting nurse for 48 hours so that he would have someone and we would private pay for that. So he would have a wingman that would help him for the first two days after surgery to make sure he got proper fluids and he got a chance to get back on his feet and recovered. I mean, my dad's had kidney stones five, six times in his life. And so he's just like, hey, I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. Let me heal, you know. But uh, that's not the way it worked. Um, When they came out to see my dad, they did not help him. Instead, they did an evaluation. And he was just 12 hours out of surgery, hadn't had a drop of drink yet. And um, I had the video camera, which I could talk two ways to. So I talked to the person that was doing the assessment, not knowing she was doing the assessment, thinking she was there to help him. And she's like, he has no water. And she's like, there's a cup in the trash can. She goes, there's no cups here. Not in the drinking fountains are all closed because of COVID. So I said, take the cup out of the trash can. It's from yesterday. So um, that's how he got his first glass of water after his surgery. And he was just screaming, give me water, give me water. Why can't I get any water? You know, but nobody would mm-hmm. give him water. And then um, what we didn't know was he was signed up for hospice. Um, they told my da- they said my dad you know, he had recently lost some weight. Yeah, he's having surgery, right? <laughs> and that he's weaker than he was a week ago. Yes, he tested lower. So, um, And they wrote down that he had chronic malignant prostate cancer, even though his PSA had been zero for five years. And he had cleared surgery the day before, and the surgery was successful too. So um, I don't know how he can competent one day, and then the very next day, while he's saying full sentences and paragraphs and very clearly asking for what he wants, they deemed him as incompetent and um, got signed up for hospice. Now, who, had, said, who, who said he had prostate cancer? That's, the, what's, on the application for, that's what's on his application for um, hospice, that his for terminal hospice. illness was chronic malignant prostate cancer. Okay, so who signed him in? He didn't sign himself in. No, it was... Um, my sister actually works at a hospital. They met her in the lobby with an iPhone, and with her finger, she signed something. And so okay. she didn't read it, and she didn't get a copy. But also, there were two doctors that signed him in as being terminal. Um, and one was a Medicare doctor that lived three hours away. When, when it's COVID, they didn't come in, so he didn't get to see a doctor. They didn't, he didn't get to see his own doctor, his primary. Um, so two doctors that weren't his doctors signed him with a paper review as being terminal. Okay, I also want to point out to our listeners that you did not have medical power of attorney because at the time with you having your surgery and you having your issues, so you did not have that. Somebody else in the family had it, but yes. you did not have that. So I just want to make yes. that clear because that comes up later in your story about your mom. Yeah, because I never saw the contract, even though I kept asking for it. Um, When I finally got the contract 10 days after he died, it said um, 
do not tell my dad he's in hospice and don't tell anybody else he's in the hospice. It'll cause distress in the family. So on purpose, they weren't allowed to use the word hospice. They wouldn't, couldn't tell him he was in hospice. They couldn't tell him that he was terminal or why he was terminal because none of it was true and they didn't want him to know it. So they, they knew very well that they were going against his will. I mean, as soon as I told my priest that they said, don't tell him, they go, then you know it was against his will. <laughs> right, right. And my dad wanted to live. He told everybody that till the day he died. So, but other people say, you know, oh, if I had to give myself insulin, well, gosh, I'd do that for 25 years. Um, if I had Parkinson's, I'd want to die. And my dad's like, Parkinson's stinks. I can't live with my wife. I can't live with my dog. My dad had it. I know what I'm in for. I accept it. Why can't anybody else accept it? It mm-hmm. stinks. It's mostly for me. <laughs> you know, it should have been I his want, choice. Yeah. Right. Exactly. exactly. So, um, unfortunately, um, you know, about 10 days into it, I saw a nurse come in and she says, oh, I'm going to make you comfortable. I'm going to take you off 75% of your medicines. And she's like, look at my butt. Don't I have a nice butt? And she was trying to distract my dad. And um, I tell my sister, look at the tape at 430. She's taking him off all his meds. She goes, well, they have to have me authorize them. And I have authorized nothing. And I, but they took him off his diabetes medicine. They took him off his thyroid medicine. They even took him off some of his Parkinson's medicine. So they were setting him up to feel terrible. Exactly. And they weren't even taking blood sugars anymore because he's, um, you know, in hospice. So, I mean, exactly. at one time my dad said, can I have a Tylenol? I'm in pain. And they said, nope, you got to wait till Tuesday. Your hospice nurse only comes once a week. You're hospice now. We can't help you. But the day after this the surgery, is, yeah, and this is the point that it, that I made earlier. They don't tell you they're going to take you off of your meds, but once you've enrolled them into hospice, hospice comes in often and takes them off of their medication with no approval whatsoever from no discussion about it. They just take you off your medicine. And what is going to happen to that individual who is on insulin, who is on heart medicine, blood pressure medicine, kidney medicine, you're going to start getting ill and that's so they can continue, they can start giving you more and more medicine because toxic drugs, aka morphine, ativan, fentanyl, it is all part of their manipulation and part of their plan. They know exactly what they are doing. So I'm sorry, go ahead, Suzette. Yeah, and they also take you away from your doctors. And then my dad, at Correct. one point, when his urine was black, and we could see it because of the urine bag in the video camera, he's like, I'm going to explode. And, I, and it was like me, like I was going to explode. So I, I knew the feeling. And um, so I was on my way to go get him, at the, take him to the emergency room with my brother, and my sister stopped us. And then she said, they said it's normal. And then she goes, call him yourself. So I called, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's black. That's good. That means he's closer to death. That's our goal. I said, no, he's here for curative. He's not here for um, hospice. He just had kidney stone surgery. He, is not, he doesn't have a DNR. He is not terminal. <laughs> he, he wants to exactly. be cured. That's why he took the surgery. <laughs> exactly. So, but, um, you know, I'm... You know, once he went on hospice, people could see him. So they thought that that was worth it. And he got a new mattress with air bubbles in it, and he got some pad for the floor. Whoopee, he needed those things for what? He got them for five or six days, and it cost him his life. Um, right. And, you know, I finally got a hold of the hospice doctor three hours away, 
he ended up driving down, and he was horrified after I told him my dad did not have active prostate cancer. And he drove down, and the nursing home would not let him, or the assisted living would not let him in. He waited three hours, even though he had his COVID shot, he had his negative test, and he was his doctor. Um, so after three hours, they finally let him in, and we had a care meeting, and I said, where's my dad's primary? And they said, oh, well, he's not invited because he's not your dad's doctor anymore. Um, but uh, the hospice doctor said, we have completely failed this man. He has not got prostate cancer, and he's not going to die from it even six months from now. Something else will take him. We completely failed him. And I said, okay, let's take him off hospice. And everyone's like, oh, no, 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 he's got this, he's got this. And he's like, okay, he's got an assessment next week. Let's do the assessment, and then we can make a plan if we need to take him off of hospice. But they made sure he didn't make it that far. So um, the other thing that happened was um, if you have Parkinson's, you have mobility issues, and it includes your esophagus, your GI tract. And so my dad over the years had his esophagus stretched about six times, and they said no more. Um, because food or even water could get stuck in his esophagus and he could choke to death or aspire. Um, so the last thing you want to do is give somebody spoons of peanut butter with no crackers, no water in between. And um, we had a, a, a visitor that saw him do that to him. And he's like, stop, stop, the tank is full. And they're like, you need to eat, you're, you're whittling to nothing, you've got to eat this. So my dad was put with all this peanut butter in his throat and then he had dinner and then he laid down and um, it was that night that he passed away. But before um, this last visit from a family member, um, the hospice nurse had come in and my dad said, please call the doctor. I'm in pain. I need to see the doctor today. Please call the doctor. And she goes, well, describe your pain. Point to your pain. Well, he was very clear in where he said the pain was in the three spots and he was very clear in the words he used. And she's like, okay, I will. And then she started packing up and getting ready to go. And he's like, you're going to call the doctor? Oh, yes, I'm going to call him right now. Again, where's those pains? He repeated again where they were. But um, she ended up calling my sister saying, oh, he had good vitals and he was laughing at my jokes. Your sister's um, concerns are unwarranted because I called saying I think my dad's going to die today. <laughs> and, um, you know, eventually, like, the hospice doctor called me back and said, I can't re reconcile between her and the nurse when you and I'm like well my dad died so what do you think but um you know I watched on the video camera and um the very last day they pushed away his phone and his food and his water they would deliver his food to a refrigerator and at this point he was bed bound so how could he but their skill was still giving him his insulin without his food and they rolled his back to the door and he's facing a wall and um he could hear me on the video camera because it was we had two of them and it was a two-way kind of thing and it would record like 15 seconds at a time, but um, it was mostly a communications tool. And like if my dad was on the floor, if he wasn't hurting, he'd say, yoo-hoo, that means he needs help. Versus like, I need help bad, you know. Um, and he loved having his camera because it was his connection to the outside world. He couldn't really use the phone anymore. And he wanted to know what was happening in the outside world. And he also liked to just talk to us or say good morning or good afternoon or sure. show us something, that kind of thing. So. Um, well, it was his way of communicating outside yeah. of that one bed, one, that one, one room. Absolutely. Exactly. Say what yep. he and said, what he told the nurses, either take me to my doctor 
Yeah, actually, you told my um, brother and myself, like, you know, uh, when he was in a lot of pain uh, a couple days after the surgery, he's like, either take me to the emergency room or bring me a gun. He's like, I'm in tremendous pain. But they wouldn't give him anything for the pain. And uh, my sister said, if, you know, I'm blocking you from getting him, and if you keep interfering, I'm going to block you from from being involved with Dad. I was just guilty of trying to, you know, help the situation, you know? Correct, right. And they actually, uh, the camera that you had, they actually at times would cover the camera, and in one instance they turned it off. Yeah, the one the night before he died, the nurse that um, told him that she was going to get the doctor, um, she looked at the camera and says, oh, I need to turn you off because I need to um, service you. And so she puts a, a face cloth or something over the camera. Then um, all of a sudden, you know, it comes off. But then I notice she grabs a syringe that's on the blanket next to my dad's leg, and she opens a zipper pocket in her right side pocket and slips the syringe in and zips it back up. Like, who puts a used syringe inside their pocket? So after my dad died, I asked the hospice doctor, I said, what was in that syringe? He goes, she doesn't have a syringe. We only use pills in hospice. What are you saying? What do you think was in there? I said, I don't know what's in there, but that's the last thing my dad got before he died. (laughs) So he got something that was unauthorized, and she made a big point of looking in the camera saying, I got to turn you off. (laughs) And then you saw her. Yeah, I did. And I thought my, you know, my dad thought she was going to get help. And that last night, too, I was able to tell my dad that my mom had talked to the primary. I had talked to um, his original kidney surgeon, who was mine, and um, they were going to take him on and we were going to get him to his doctors and pull him out of hospice on Tuesday. But he died. um, He died overnight before Tuesday morning arrived. So we were a day late from being able to do that. So it was really sad because he was a guy that really wanted to live and, um, you know, he had wouldn't have gone through that big surgery to take that kidney stone out if he knew they were just going to do that to him. He goes, they're just railroad me to death. It's just a kidney stone. Let me heal, you know. Exactly. I mean, why would and he go through a surgery for kidney stones if he didn't care to live? He wanted to yeah. live. And... Um, my siblings don't didn't understand the fact that someone's talking like that is pretty darn competent. And then he told me, he's like, hey, that hospice doctor talked a great story, but nobody's following him. They all are still doing the same thing. They railroaded me to death. Get me out of here before they kill me. You know, he's, he's talking like this the day before. <laughs> and you know? he did. Um, and they had even said when he asked for help, like, you know, to get on the toilet or to get up, it, that's not our job. Okay, that was pretty bad, and that was right after he had a surgery. I'm glad you mentioned that because yes. I had hired that person to do, to be a wingman, but she ended up coming in and doing an assessment. She did get him to the toilet, but then he was on the toilet, and he was on the toilet for an hour and a half, and they wouldn't help him get off because they said they're not a nursing home. And so one came in, and they said, okay, we've got to wait for a second person because you're a two-person lift, and then the two came in, and she's like, I can't lift you. I'm protecting my lady parts, and I want to have another baby. So they just stood there with their arms behind their back, watching my dad for a good 20 minutes, and he'd get up and he would fall back down. He would get up, he'd fall back down to the point that he ended up getting bed sores on his backside. His bones actually stuck out of his skin from the injury on the toilet. And then they didn't medicate him or wound care of them or anything because they said, oh, he's in hospice, that's normal, ignore it. And that's what they told my sister. 
And, uh, you know, my dad's like, I got to get out of here. And she's like, they all say that. You can't listen to that. So, you know, my sister worked in the hospital, and she's used to people more in general trying to heal people rather than this situation where they were minimizing their work. And, you know, a six-foot-five guy that slow, uh, they don't have enough time to help people that are fast, you know? So, exactly. Uh, and that I mean that is the whole fallacy of it. They trick you to get you in. They signed yep. him in without even having his permission and saying yep. that he had a prostate cancer that was, you know, incurable and you're going to die anyway. They so they put him in there. They stop his medication. They don't help him do anything. He gets bed sores. They don't treat the bed sores. And this is how we take care of our elderly. This is yes. what we're supposed to do. This is so wrong on every single level. This is not how we are compassionate and how we protect and take care of our loved ones. I eventually, through the hospice doctor, got his um, bed sores treated the last two weeks. I also um, got them to take a urine analysis, but they filed it in the drawer on the 22nd because he was in hospice. And it was an $800 test that they didn't even find until January. And at that point, it was pretty bad. And so we finally got treated because the hospice doctor said um, uh, UTI is not his terminal illness. So I can treat it. So he treated it. And my dad's urine was clear for a couple of days before he died. But they had already set up the course with, you know, the lack of water and the lack of food and, um, you know, changing all his medicines around and this kind of thing. But, um, you know, the day he died, I got the call in the middle of the night, and my sister and I lived close, so we got there first. Well, there's a two-person limit during hospice to see him. So when my mom showed up, they said, you've hit the limit for the day. (laughs) So my brother said, just get in the elevator and go up. So she did. So they called the police, and the police actually came out for my mom, 80 years old, with a cane, going to see, you know, her deceased husband. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. They came out. Mm -hmm. Did they let her go in? She went in. That's why they called. Oh, my God. I mean, this is so so wrong. So after that, you wound up going on TV. So, um, you know, I've been advocating for um, the seniors. I went up to Lansing. I spoke on the steps, and then some of the TV cameras came and interviewed me, and then I was on TV. Um, I ended up having um, a crew come to my house, and they sounded like they were going to do a documentary on um, the effect of um, COVID on families and um, elderly and all that. And I haven't seen the documentary come out, but um, they ended up doing a commercial. And, um, you know, our governor, um, Gretchen Whitmer, she was telling us, don't go on spring break, don't go to Florida, you know, stay home, uh, don't plant seeds, don't, um, you know, just stay and shut down. Um, don't go see anybody. And meanwhile, she got a private jet and she flew to Florida at the same time. So they had a big campaign against the hypocrisy of that. So what I was saying on the Capitol steps was Michigan daughters want to see Michigan dads. She got to see her dad and I wanted to see my dad and I did not, I was not able to see my dad before he died and he died alone, you know? So I was on a TV commercial and I mean, if you just look up Whitmer and that, you'll find the commercial. It's 30 seconds, and I'm holding a picture of my mom and dad at the end. It's just me in the commercial, but it was um, it was pretty moving, and um, I hope people understand because I don't think people understood. They're like, you've got to go in and advocate for your dad, and we couldn't. All I could do was advocate from the outside, and let me tell you, 
they said they didn't meet anybody that advocated more. I talked to, you know, the headquarters. I talked to the, you know, the complex head. I talked to the fire chief. I mean, the fire chief said because of what I did, you don't know how many people you may have saved because they had to toe the line after they were exposed with what you wrote about them and, and, and the help that you got them as well. Because I got them PPE for them as well from a company I used to work for. So um, the fire chief was very um, happy in the fact that um, it brought attention. And he said later that they became more um, a role model in nursing homes on how to do it. So, um, and then when my dad was in my town, um, same thing, the fire chief, uh, because of what I talked to him about, he went out and did an inspection, and um, they ended up having a big outbreak, and I think 30 out of the 36 people ended up, um, and they had a lot of deaths, but uh, they stopped bringing new people in, and they had to do a lot of cleanup activities, um, and the fire chief was helping there, too, so he's like, if you hadn't given us a heads up, we wouldn't have been able to do that inspection and get things in order. So well, I commend you for speaking up and not just acquiescing, and that's what people need to do. They need to let their voices be heard, just you know, like you're saying it tonight and you're letting people know. You, you cannot not speak up against evil, and the exactly. way that our loved ones are treated is wrong. So... Um, and after this, a lot of retaliation for that, though, and so he always wanted to be, be careful about how I said things. And yet, when he came out of the homes that he was in, he's like, "Go ahead and talk about them now." He goes, "People need to know." He said, "What happened in the beginning of COVID? Putting all those people in hospice, not letting them see their doctor, not letting them see their family, not even knowing if they had COVID because they didn't have tests for people in memory care, and that they died. They didn't count anyways because." They weren't tested and they weren't skilled for nursing. So my dad's like, the world needs to know what happened. What happened to them is not right. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. So after this, you realize that having a medical document assigning you as the power of attorney for your mom was the way you wanted to go. Yeah, and by then I was listening to your program. I had read the books that you had suggested. I also um was active in some of the groups and talking to different people. And I got my mom. She was, um, she listened to a couple of your broadcasts, especially the one about uh, Robert's father who had Parkinson. She listened to that one as well. Robert Meyer. Um, and, mm-hmm. Yep. Rob Meyer. And also um, the halo. My mom um, wrote to them. She got their paperwork. She signed it. She made it an addendum in her, her paperwork with her lawyer as well. And she told everybody that she didn't want to have somebody else have uh, the sin of murder on them to help her out. She wanted to go out naturally. She didn't want to be um, hastened with medications like that. So, um, you know, I turned my mom around totally because she had um, been willing to let my dad go. Um, And then she realized near the end of my dad's life that – um, it was his right, and she campaigned to try to save him, and she talked to his doctors as well. So she reversed it near the end. And then she knew what I did for my dad. And um, my my siblings, they didn't fully understand. That's the hardest part is because you're, you're in a, like a fight with them because they were like, because you were selfish, he had to suffer nine more months. Wouldn't it have been better if he would have just died and you were, if you left him at the first place? <laughs> no, because that's not what he wanted. No, it's not what he wanted at all. And that was was his choice to live and to fight to live. Yeah, he had family dinners. He helped me plant a garden. He helped me have a um, 
you know, graduation parade. Everything was crazy that year, but he got to live as a family out. Oh, my gosh, I had him with a tennis racket and his, uh, you know, scooter out front. He was playing tennis in my driveway. You know, mm-hmm. we, had, we, we made the best of it. We, it was a lot of hard work and everything, but, you know, rather than laying in a nursing home wondering when you're going to exactly. die, knowing you can't stand anybody, and, um, and you live is like a prisoner of war. <laughs> right, you live until you die. Yes. And make the most of it. So, so um, so that was great, you know. Right, he got to mom, do what he was wanted. So let's talk about your mom, Annette. Okay, so my mom, um, she was living independently in her apartment, and uh, my dad died in January, and around Thanksgiving time, um, she found out she had gout, and she had a big toe that was swollen, and she couldn't walk, and she couldn't fit on a shoe, and. They put her on cortisone. Well, she's diabetic. You can eat nothing, and your sugar goes to 400. So she thought she had a broken meter, and she was pretty private about some of her medical stuff with us. But again, <laughs> I got laid off again, and so I told her I would help her, And um, but that meant I needed to see her medical records. And I'm pretty savvy with medical records, and I can set up all the accounts, and I can make them all talk to each other, and I could get test results even before the doctor sometimes. But... Um, so my mom was having really high blood sugar, and she wasn't doing well. I took her to her senior oncologist, her nephrologist, and I also saw her primary. And when I took her to the oncologist, um, she had leukemia, but it had been in remission, and it stayed in remission until she died as well. But uh, when her blood panel came back at midnight, I looked at it, and um, her GFR had slipped um, from 17, which is not good, Um and like 15 is when some of them go on to dialysis, but she was down to a nine. So I called the on-call doctor as I was driving to her place, and um, then I called my sister saying I'm bringing her to the emergency room. And, like, my sister worked at the hospital. There's too much COVID. Don't bring her. I'm like, no, kidney failure trumps COVID. She's got to go. Um, I wasn't able to go in with her, but I was able to bring her in there. And um, after, you know, a three-week stay, they were able to stabilize her kidney and she was able to um, leave and go to a, a rehab and she did not have to start dialysis. They brought it up to a, a functioning level. Um, but that didn't last too long. Um, she had a, you know, stay in um, rehab and then she went back home. But once she went back home, um, even with all kinds of people coming every day to help her, um, she was having a hard time um, maintaining her blood sugar, her food, her water, and she was starting to fall, and um, she ended up uh, having to go back into the hospital. And uh, that wasn't very good because um, she ended up eventually um, having to go back. It go, she ended up having to go on to dialysis. So then she went on dialysis around January, and she was on dialysis for about six months. She'd go three times a week. So, but uh, the one place she was at with rehab just around Christmas time, and it's so tough when you're sick at a holiday. The doctors aren't available. The nurses aren't available. There's the lowest amount of staff. There's, at that time, they were letting us go in to see her. So people are bringing their inappropriate things, um, right. stuff that makes them feel good, not what the resident needs. You know, stop bringing her alcohol. Stop bringing her, you know, um, and don't bring her nuts. You know, she's got gout, this kind of thing. But, uh, you know, they delayed doing her blood work, and when they finally did her blood work, I was visiting her, and all of a sudden I see an ambulance with lights on out 
outside and they walked in, we just looked at your blood work and we're going to send you somewhere to get you some help. And I said, so is it ambulance for her? So my mom had like three minutes warning that she was going to go to the hospital and she ended up going to the hospital and that's where she went on dialysis. But uh, I couldn't go in the hospital there either because it was COVID. And my brother actually went into the emergency room and tried to pull my mom out. And I was waiting in the parking lot as well. And he came out. He goes, I try to take mom out. I'm like, you're not our medical power of attorney. He goes, I'm her financial. So I just told her I'm her power of attorney. And uh, so I went in and said, hey, my brother's not the medical power of attorney. And they said, it's okay. Your mom's competent. She said, no, I'm sick. I need help. I'm staying. So my mom was able to speak for herself and she was able to stay. And then she went on to the dialysis. So um, it was kind of a hassle with the dialysis because they thought she was, um, you know, medically unstable to ride the bus and they don't want to take a risk. So we had had family make arrangements to drop her off and pick her up three times a week, which was a challenge for us with people working and everything. But, uh, you know, um, eventually um, she went to, Davida, and she looked terrible, according to my brother-in-law. And then when my brother picked her up, he said she was awful. And um, unfortunately, at that time, I myself had COVID. So I couldn't go and see how she's doing. So I'm begging for my brother. How is she? Take her to the emergency room. Don't just ignore it. And he didn't get back what to me all day. Frame? What that was, um That was at the um, end of June. Okay, so this is right before the July 4th. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I missed there's some other things in between. Okay. Um, let's see. So, yeah, my mom was on dialysis for about six months, and at one point um, you had to be careful, too, because, like, they just call somebody when somebody has a problem. My mom had a problem with dialysis, so they didn't call me the medical power of attorney. They called my sister because I guess alphabetically her name comes up first. So they called my sister, and my sister says, I'll come after work. So my mom had to wait for her, and even though my mom was at a hospital having this dialysis, my sister took her out and drove her home, let her take care of her dog and do other things, and she had a six-hour delay to going into an emergency room to the hospital my sister works at, instead of just going to the emergency room in the complex she was at. So my mom lost six hours, and at that point, she was in serious problems. She had water on her heart and on both her lungs. And uh, they ended up having to do three separate surgeries to remove quite a bit of water from all three of those things. And we were lucky we didn't lose her at that time. And so she was in the hospital for quite a while. Um, But she was at a different hospital that didn't have all her dialysis information. So that's not easy either. So when you've got a complex problem, you want to go someplace where all the data is. (laughs) And also doctors that know her and know what what she wills, you know? Right. So when my mom got out of the hospital that day, she went back to skilled floor nursing and in the senior complex that she was in, and um, they had services that would give her PT and occupational therapy and other care, like she ended up having a pressure sore, and then she knew what my dad suffered with, so she needed wound care too. So... um, she was there for a while, and um, they finally said that she had used her time up with that, so she had to go to private pay, and she lasted for about a month on private pay, and then they called me on a Tuesday saying that they thought that my mom had COVID and that she had vomited eight times in the evening, and my mom had zero history of, of vomiting. Um, 
but they didn't call me back for the results, and I kept calling two times a day for the next five days. I never did get the results that she did or did not have COVID. Um, and then they on Thursday, they had a stat order for her to have her abdomen looked at because she had a stomach ache. Um, but I guess they came while she was having dialysis, so she missed it. But long story short, she ended up having the ultrasound done on Sunday night, and the results came in on Monday. And it was 4th of July, and, um, you know, I'm begging my family, please, somebody needs to go see mom. Somebody needs to take her to the hospital. Somebody needs to make a choice for her because she's not getting out of bed anymore. And at that point, her phone went missing. Nobody could find a phone of a person who's laying in bed. So she wasn't going anywhere, so her phone's never turned up. But that's what happened with both my parents. You know, last week, they cut off their communication so they can't reach out to anybody. So, like, I ended up getting a hold of one of the night nurses, and she brought a phone so I could talk to my mom for a few moments. That's all. But uh, when my sister went to see her on the 4th of July, she waited two and a half hours before she finally got to talk to a nurse in charge, and she's like, hey, my mom's been sick since Tuesday, and you don't even have, you know, you know, where are the ultrasound results? Um, how long are you going to let this go? She doesn't look good. And so they got um, an agreement to let her go to the hospital. And when she arrived at the hospital, um, she went straight to ICU, and they said she was in severe condition, and they also said, you know, um, she might not make it. Well, she made it about another 48 hours. She never got out of ICU. Um, up until the last six hours of her life, she was still very competent in talking and all. But, um, you know, what is so wrong that she has to go to ICU? They, they were just letting her rot in the bed. They weren't helping her out. And I was calling twice a day and leaving messages. I was leaving emails as well. Um, I, they even have a Facebook site. I was putting posts on that as well. I couldn't get through to anybody. And I had COVID, so I couldn't help it. My brother tells me, just put on a mask and go see her. I'm like, no way. I'm not going to give other people, including my mom, COVID, you know. Um, but, and she you know, says no to hospice at this time, right? Yes. She's always said no to hospice because she saw what happened to my dad. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so I'm not there, you know, on I think it was Tuesday that she died. I wasn't there because I had COVID, but I, you know, I talked to somebody on the phone, and it was an Indian woman. And, um, <clears throat> like, a, there ended up being a family meeting at 1.30 to 2 um, about palliative care, but they had already talked to my siblings at 11 o'clock, and they already agreed she needed comfort care. But they didn't tell me that. Nobody told me that. And so at 2 o'clock, he's like, so do you agree to give your mom some medicine? And I said, you can give her some if she's in pain, but don't give her enough to kill her and, you know, give her the minimum amount. She had a moan going. Um, and he's like, good, because I already started giving it to her at 11. I'm like, What? <laughs> And uh, I said, what, although her blood pressure is coming back up, you're going to be able to do that CT scan? He's like, yeah, everything's going the right direction. Let's just wait and see. We're hoping to get her blood pressure up, and then we'll do a CT scan. And I said, if you do a CT scan and you tell us there's something really wrong and nothing can be done, but I said, nobody's told us this. She's not vomiting blood. She's not pooping blood. Um, And in the end, that's what they said she died from was um, a gastro hemorrhage that gave her toxic shock. But nobody saw the nobody saw the blood, you know, coming out of her like that, you know. But they'd already started her on morphine. They did, and um, they started on morphine around eleven. Um, her best friend came, 
for that meeting at 1.30 to 2, she stayed with my mom while they were having a meeting with us. And she said that at that point they had a tube down her throat to suction because uh, they were trying to see if she had a, a bleed. Um, and she said it was just bile coming up. She said not much. There was a little, little tinge of red. You know, later in the day there was there was some um, blood. But then when they showed me on the camera, my mom, they laid her flat. And I'm like, she's got sleep apnea. You've got her sleeping flat. And you got a tube down her throat. And they're like, yeah, she's pulling at her IV, which was in her groin. And, and she's pulling at um, different things because she's in pain. And my sister's like, they're keeping her alive artificially. They have her on Medidrin. And I'm like, that's the laser blood pressure. She's been on it for six months. <sighs> but that's what they tell the family, that um, they're, they're going to take them off of these life-saving. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm on insulin. It's life-saving for me. But you take it away, I'll die, you know? <laughs> Exactly. So, you know, it's it's such a, a, a fraud, you know. But um, then around 5 o'clock I got a phone call from the, the Indian woman, and I thought she said she was the attending doctor, but I guess she worked for the attending doctor. And it turns out that I never once talked to the attending doctor, even though my mom had been there 48 hours, and they were, weren't even doing anything heroic to save her. They were just watching her die, you know, because they said her blood pressure was too low to do anything. So, and that's um, when you find out she's in hospice. Well, what she said was, I, um, we do this all the time. It's not going to change how your mom's being treated. Nothing's going to change. But since we found out that you're her power of attorney, we need you to authorize us adding a, a one word, just one word. Do you give me that permission? I said, well, what's the one word? She was, it's not going to change anything. I used to work in Cincinnati. We do this all the time to everybody. At the last minute, we call you and change it because I needed to see hospice. And I said, no, that wasn't agreed upon or discussed. And I said, does my mom need hospice? How is that going to help her? You're just going to take away your care. And you're going to, he goes, she goes, yes, she'll be, um, there'll be less care around here. And I said, is it going to help my siblings? She goes, yes, it's torturous for them to watch her die like this. And to make it elongated is very cruel to your siblings. And I said, I'm sorry it's cruel to my siblings, but if it's going to hurt my mom, no. <laughs> don't put her in, don't take away her treatment of any kind because she still has exactly. a chance to pull through. Exactly. But um, so then my brother called me a few minutes later and says, uh, Mom's about to die. Do you want to watch it on FaceTime? And I said, How do you know? And he goes, Well, the doctor's here. And then he shows me the doctor. I said, I thought it was an Indian woman. And he's like, I don't know who you're talking to. I'm the attending doctor. And I said, oh, and he said, sorry to meet you under these circumstances. I'm going to be blunt. She's going to die. <coughs> so I wasn't able to answer a question. I didn't know she was on that verge of dying. And then um, they took away her midogen, and she, her blood pressure went to zero. So, and they were give, and, giving her morphine in an IV. Yes, in her groin. Right. And I don't know what else. I don't have all the bills yet. I got some more that came in today. I'm still trying to figure some things out. I wanted to see. They were able to do an ultrasound. I never got those results. I asked my siblings, I go, before you leave, get that ultrasound result. And they're like, it doesn't matter. It was, it's over. <laughs> and, uh, you know, next day I couldn't go make the plans for the funeral because I had COVID. And they're like, oh, we had three votes. You're the fourth vote. So your vote didn't count. We didn't ask you anything. So the answer was no to the autopsy. The answer was no to a obituary. And then the the answer was yes, we're going to euthanize the dog because the funeral authorized um, would agree to um, cremate the dog with my mom. And my mom's dog is 16 years old, and it's her pride and joy. 
And this she wanted is, us to her dog. I want you to repeat that. Rosie, your mother's yes. dog, your sibling yes. agreed to have her euthanized. Oh, and they said it, my vote didn't To have her euthanized with the mom. And yep. tell me where Rosie is now. She's with me, and I'm not even a dog person. <laughs> exactly. And I've seen adorable mm-hmm. pictures of Rosie, and she takes walks with you, and yes. she is a little happy dog because you are helping and taking care of her. Exactly. Just what my mom would have wanted, and I told them, you know mom would have wanted it. So, um, no. No. But I look at Rosie, and, and she's got the white hair like both my parents had at the end, you know. And I'm um, then I had to take her to the dentist, and she had to have 11 teeth taken out because she hadn't been maintained. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, now I see my cousin who had lost her teeth from seizures. And I was like, wow, every person that I was an advocate for all my life, you know, is rolled up in this dog. And, um, you know, I, I just, she's in a forever home. We don't know how long a 16-year-old dog will last but uh, her blood work's much better than mine. She had nothing wrong with her blood work or her urine. She just had um, problems with uh, her teeth, with a right. ton and she's, of harder buildup. And she's being given the chance to live. Yes. And But this is the point. People are so willing to put down their parents because it's inconvenient, and they're making the decision. If I had Parkinson's, I wouldn't want to live. If I had to have dialysis, right. I wouldn't. Well, that's your choice. Everybody exactly. should have that choice. If that's what you think, that I don't, if I have Parkinson's, I want to die, then there are people that will help you die. It, you know, if you decide, yeah. you know, I've got kidney disease, I don't want to do dialysis, then there are places that will take care yeah. of you. The problem is, is that people are making this decision for other people, and in the United States, there are 10, well, nine. Uh, states that have euthanasia plus Washington, D.C. But you don't even need euthanasia in any of those states because hospice is euthanizing people. They are doing it legally. It is condoned. It is premeditated murder. They know exactly what they're doing, and they are well-equipped to manipulate the family promise you whatever they think you want to hear to get you to enroll. It is a huge money-making conglomerate. And there are thousands, millions of people that will will testify the same type things, Suzette, that you have told us here tonight. They didn't treat your mom. They didn't treat your dad. They were not respected and they were not treated with dignity. And this is wrong. Um, I want to say something about um, gout that we were talking about earlier. Um, I I looked that up. My father-in-law has that. So I did some research on that, and it is a form of arthritis, and it comes on immediately, usually in the um, toe joints, mostly the large toe, but it can be in the ankles, fingers, wrists, elbows, and knees, and it can be incredibly painful. But what causes that? is it's a buildup of crystals in the joints when the body produces uric acid. And uric acid has to be broken down. And if you have too many foods, which are purines, then they will cause these uric acids, and that causes the crystals. But the foods, I was looking that up because that's that's important to know. Um, The food is seafood, 
some meat and drinks that are high in fructose, which is all of the drinks, you know, a lot of the um, the sodas have that, fruit juices, and pepperoni, salami, all of those type things, the processed meats, if you're prone to get gout, it doesn't mean you're going to get it, but if you're prone to get it, those are the foods that you shouldn't be eating. So I'm like sure. The worst, right? And there's some that have some. But, like, I gave right. that well, top 10 list to my siblings, and they still brought her a shrimp cocktail with turkey gravy from Thanksgiving. And so she had three turkey dinners in her refrigerator, and she ate all that all week long, and then she ended up with gout attacks. Well, and she, she, had, she was, zone, and she had diabetes, which is another yep. people that have diabetes or that are obese or if it um, runs in your family, kidney disease, heart disease, high blood pressure. Those are people that are prone to get gout. So a lot of it comes down to the way that we live and the foods and the medications that we're taking. So it's, you know, there are ways to try to avoid some things. For me, hospice is going to be one of the main things that I avoid. Yeah, so I I'm want a to really big advocate for the video cameras. Ten days after my dad died, my mom and I went on TV to advertise a bill. It had passed our House and Senate in Michigan, but our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, she vetoed it. So um, we were trying to get her to pass that. But just at a time when everybody with COVID needed to have a video camera, he lost his right to that. I also advocate for the um, essential care visits so that somebody like a daughter can come in and give him water after a surgery and help him on and off the toilet after a surgery. Right. Now, tell them again what is the camera that you had. So I had a WISE, W-Y-Z-E. It was like $25. You can buy it at Home Depot. And you can program it to give you alerts. So um, the four children and my mom, five of us were all getting alerts anytime some activity was happening. So we all could glance any time, even in the middle of the night, um, and, you know, we could talk to him, and he really loved having that because he was alone otherwise. Um, but you also have, that, to, you have to have an Internet connection, and yes. that means that it has to be hooked up at the facility that they're at, so they're going to know that it's there. Um, yes. Some states will allow it, some will know. not. But it puts them on notice that somebody is watching. Uh, you know, you're monitoring your loved one in that facility if you cannot keep them at home. Obviously, keeping them at home is the, the best thing that you could do is to keep your loved one at home. But I recognize that sometimes that's just not possible. But yeah, the video the camera actually picked up the chime from um, a carbon monoxide detector, too. So I was able to alert the building that they were having a carbon monoxide detector go off that they weren't aware oh, of yet. Oh, okay. Can, let me recognize stop. the tones. Yeah, let me stop one second. If anybody wants to make a comment or has a question, if you select one on your phone, it will put you in a queue, and Marty will put you through. So at this time, we will accept questions. The one so, last thing I want to say is the state of Michigan, they – in early in the pandemic, gave immunity to all long-term care. So there is no recourse for anything that happens, even some criminal activities. No lawyer will take a case. So um, even if they could take a t- case, they look at how much life somebody has, and you, and you would go through this whole process, and what do you really win? Um, so I'm 
advocating to rescind this immunity that has been given to these long-term care facilities in Michigan. New York had it. Cuomo removed it before he left office. I want Michigan to remove it too because that gives them a free reign to make mistakes and not have to be accountable for it. It exactly. puts them at tremendous risk. So if anybody is listening from Michigan, um, that's you know something that Suzette is working on, trying to change that law. Um, and my email, in case you had questions about some of the resources that I gave, because I know I gave them quick and people probably didn't get to write them down, but my email is Marsha Joyner, with an I, J-O-I-N-E-R, at... at Marsha Joyner 2018 at gmail.com, or you can always go on the link. If you're on the Block Talk Radio link at this time, you can go down at the bottom, and Marty has a place where you can uh, make comments there, and we'll watch those and be able to pick it up. But you know, this show has been a really great comfort to me because as I was going through this, it gave me comfort into my observations of what I was seeing was really truly what was happening. And you also gave us the resources and we were able to contact Halo. We were able to read these books and talk to other people in other groups. So I really appreciate this group. And as much as you know any of these things can happen, it still can happen because there's too many other variables that you can't control. That's right. That's right. And as much as you're trying, like in your case, you became your mother's advocate but because you had COVID and you couldn't be there all of the time, then your siblings made decisions and the doctors listened to them. Yeah, the hospital took my complaint, but in the end they said they had three siblings all in agreement early in the morning, so they didn't have to talk to me, and that's okay. Even though they knew I was sort of life-affirming that she had a HALO policy in place. Um, but they have immunity too, so... That's true. No matter what it is they do, then they get immunity from You can't hold them responsible at all. And this all came about with COVID. And you know that, you know, COVID patients originally were put into the nursing homes. And it's a plan. And, I, you know, I can't express that enough that people need to understand. This is all a calling of the elderly. This isn't just happening, you know, coincidentally. It is a culling because they cost money. Medicare and Medicaid are paying money. And the government is saving money by not paying it. The facilities, because a lot of these facilities are not necessarily medical. You know, um, in Frisco, Texas, Bradley Harris, he was arrested for $65 million fraud, Medicare fraud, and they have emails and texts where he says, find me somebody and make him go bye-bye. He's in jail yeah. now, but he's not in jail for killing people. He's in jail because he frauded the government on Medicare. Yeah. And that's, what, and they, that's what they care about. An individual case. <laughs> right, and people died. Yeah. That's not what he's in prison for. So, well, I mean, I there needs... I called the OIG, and they said... They don't validate the terminal illness as being valid for my dad. They would only make sure it's on the list. So if it had that he had ovarian cancer and he was a guy, it would be okay because that's on their list. But he didn't. He didn't have 
the disease? They don't check for the validity of, of him having it. It just has to be on the list. Because chronic so would, prostate cancer's on the list, but your dad didn't yeah. have it. He has a doctor that says he didn't have it, a doctor yeah. that says that we failed this man. Yes. Yes. So people say, you know, can I get an attorney? Can I get somebody to look at my medical records? Um, you can, but you're just going to be paying for somebody to look at something because, you know, I checked 12 different attorneys for my mom. Nobody will take it. They hear hospice. Okay. Hospice has mass mutual. They don't settle out of court, and they won't deal with it. There's not enough money in it for them. And they'll straight out, if you get somebody being honest, will tell you that, that they won't take it. So what is the best thing that people can do? Avoid hospice. If you have to have hospice because your loved one is in pain, is that the only alternative? Can your doctor help you with that? Do you have to? Can you hire somebody to come in for short term? Do you have to absolutely? What is hospice going to offer you that you can't get any other avenue? And if you absolutely have to because Medicare or Medicaid is going to pay for it and you let them come in-home hospice and you're there, monitor the drugs. Watch to see if your loved one has bed sores because they may not tell you. They're not going to treat it, so you may have to be checking that for yourself. So if you must have hospice involved in your life, and in your home, watch the drugs that they give them. Do not let them just give you a comfort kit with Ativan, Haldol, morphine, fentanyl, and just give it to them whenever they say, oh, well, every four hours, just give it to them. If your person is not in pain, they're not saying they're in pain, then you don't need to give somebody something when they're asleep. And when they say they're not in pain, they don't need morphine. If they're anxious, the Ativan, and I, I need to have another program on the drugs, but the Ativan is just going to make them agitated. Haldol and Seroquel, those are drugs for bipolar people or schizophrenic. Why would you give that to an elderly person? And there's a black box warning that says don't give it to an elderly person. Why would you do that? I can't imagine if I had my dad here to the house and they had me medicating him. Can you imagine the inappropriate guilt I would have having known I medicated my dad to death? Yes. Yes, because you listened to them, because you knew no better. Yes. I'm sure that and, happens every day somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and people need to understand they're not guilty for that because they don't know what they don't know, which is why we do the programs, which is why HALO exists, which is why Ron Panzer wrote um, yes. Stealth Euthanasia, which is why Michelle Dewars wrote Killing for Profit, I mean, there are, so, there are resources out there, and we are trying to give you those resources because we don't want people to experience what we did. You can't unsee it. And even though, Suzette, you know that you weren't guilty for any of that, you're still going to feel a certain amount of guilt because I didn't save my dad. I wasn't able to save my mom. I didn't keep them. I didn't call the police first. They did, you know. Right, right. Absolutely. There was one story and, about my dad, um, and it was before he went into the nursing home. Um, he was, like, in a rehab, um, and there was a woman that was in serious trouble. Nobody was paying any attention to her. 
because she was in hospice, right? So my dad's like, she's not going to die on my watch. And he had some dementia with the dopamine medicine and stuff like that. So he literally went over and threw the fire alarm. <laughs> he goes, sometimes you just got to throw the fire alarm. And he told me, tell people the story. The fire alarm needs to go off to let people know what happened to these people. He goes, they're not here to tell the story. He goes, their story needs to be told. Throw the fire alarm. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, mm-hmm. he was ministering to them, you yes, know, when he, he knew that they were going to die. Yes. And by some stroke of luck, I had my sister's best friend from childhood actually working there, and um, she was saying goodbye to them as they went into their, when they left the building. So she knew she was the first, last person that saw them, and she's got complex grief a year later here after 11 of them all died in two weeks there. Well, you do. You can't unsee that. No. You can't forget. I mean, you're, you're going to have nightmares and, and remember, and what could I have done differently? And, again, you can't carry that guilt if you didn't know. Well, and then part of you wants to know what happened, you know. Um, come on, you, you've been, you know, gosh, you watch a football game, you want to know the final score and what happened, right? Like, what finally got mom and dad, you know? I mean, it wasn't the Parkinson's, it wasn't the cancer. Well, what got them? And they both died from something they didn't have a, a week before. Well, they both died from uh, a drug and from mm-hmm. malnutrition, not being taken yeah. care of, bed sores. Um, you know, your dad was cut like, you know, months before, and the nurse was very, you know, complacent about yeah. it. It was no big deal, you know. So, you, And he would warned her, you're going to cut me, and she did. Yep. But they don't care. And the other thing that, and I'm not knocking on nurses, but one of the things I think you and I, I, I do talk to an awful lot of people, but I think you and I may have been talking about it, is there are now visiting nurses, and they travel from one state to the other state to another state, and they don't have a vested interest in that hospital because they're traveling. They're from different countries, and they're traveling around to different hospitals or hospices or visiting nurses, and they don't have a vested interest. And, you know, a lot of people take that job, I don't know, maybe it's the only job they can get or they don't want to do it, they don't like, you know, cleaning bedpans or, you know, changing people's diapers. Well, if you don't like that, don't do that job, but don't abuse. We see too many um, YouTubes on them abusing the elderly because they don't have anybody else there to protect them from these abuses. And those people need to be, I don't know, lined up and shot or, you know, do to them what's being, what they're doing to others. Where's the compassion? Yeah, and one of the problems is not just um, the parents that are a victim. It's everybody that they had a relationship with. And especially with me watching it live on a TV all day long on a computer, um, you know, I was doing work on a computer and looking for a job while I was laid off, while I was looking at my iPhone and talking to my dad and just monitoring the whole time. But I got to watch him slowly get murdered with a death of a thousand small cuts. And that was just cruel for me to see that and not being able to stop it. I, I mean, I was able to delay a lot, but in the end I didn't get to, Okay. So I'm a victim of it too, and I got to carry this forward. And I'm trying to make lemonade out of this lem- these lemons, 
so right. that I pay forward for you, for me, my future self, for uh, you know, my children. People need to know that this is more the norm, and um, you know, a lot of people can't see it because then they would have to admit that uh, they overlook something. You know, mm-hmm. right? So and and you're you, right; it is. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And I said, well, who wouldn't have complex issues watching your parent get murdered when they're not even terminal? Right, exactly, exactly. And you don't get to say goodbye. And the no, loved one not. doesn't know. All of a sudden they're in, you know, this coma, and they hear things around them. And they don't under. My mom did not understand what had just happened to her. And we didn't get to say goodbye. We didn't get to hug her. We didn't. She didn't get to say her last words that she wanted to tell her children that, you know, that she wanted. That's all stolen from someone, and it's somebody else making the decision that their life is not worth living. Well, you should not be able to make that decision for somebody. That's, that is wrong. Paramedics around my mom, her blood pressure is it's going down. I think she's dead. Is she dead? Is she dead? I said, stop this. Put on her happy music. And I started saying, Mom, you know, I remember your stories from grade school, and then you sent us to Catholic school too. And I was going through the life of her story and when she took her last breath, rather than all these people, is she dead? Is she not dead? And, you know, what the numbers were and all this stuff. And you're like, stop yeah. saying it. She can hear. Yeah. I mean, that is one yeah. thing. The last thing that goes is their hearing. They can still hear what is going on around them. So if you're in that yeah, my situation. Sister, she said. They told her she couldn't. And I said, well, put the phone by mom. And I said, I said a corny joke to her. And she chuckled. And then I said, Mom, if you can hear me, give me a thumbs up. She gave me a thumbs up. Everyone was floored. They couldn't believe she could hear and understand. They hadn't even mm-hmm. tried. Right, and right. And she had a sister listening to them talk about all these terrible things, you know. And tell them at that time, you know, how much you love them and how much you respect them and, you know, that, yes. you know, that you're going to miss them. I mean, they always well, say, you know, tell the person impression. that they can go. <laughs> You know, tell the person that they can go. Well, they're just waiting for you to tell. You know, I, I don't, I didn't want my mom to go. I didn't want my dad to go. And, right. you know, I, but tell them you love them. And uh, recently I posted um, a Facebook um, post out that says smother them with love. Oh, I love and it. And that <laughs> if you have loved ones, you know, now alive, you have your mom, your dad, smother them with love because those of us who have lost them you can't replace your parents and there's you know every day you know i think you and i've talked about this that you want to tell your mom something or something you know that you want to tell your dad because you know he would laugh about it or you know we always miss them i just said out loud hey dad check this out you know right because we're going to miss them so um, any, we have a couple of minutes left. Any final words that you would like to say to the audience? Well, I do think it's nice if you get to say something nice to them at the end. Um, although I didn't get to talk to my dad when he was dying, I was able to say, Dad, we're getting your help. Um, we talked to your doctors. We're, we're coming tomorrow. And he gave me a thumbs up and a smile. So that was my last communications with him. Mm-hmm. He so he had well. hope. He knew he was loved by everyone, and he knew that he was heard. And that was the whole thing is that they didn't have a voice, and I felt like I had to be his voice, and I felt I was completely not listened to no matter what method or 
how professional I was, I was not listened to. And yet your program and, um, you know, talking um, to the press or on the Capitol, it was a lot, allowed me to have a voice for the family's experience and my parents' experience so that we can bring awareness and prevent this. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to do is to let people know because you didn't know I didn't know, and, you know, all the other people that have been on the program had no clue what was going on. So it is knowledge is power. So resources yeah, that's given you. But, and they don't care about um, your parents that much, and they also don't care about your relationship with your family. How am I going to ever, you know, remedy the situation with my family when, you know, they were pro-hospice and I, I was not, and I was just honoring my mom's wishes and my dad's wishes. <laughs> That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have an answer for you because um, no, welcome. No, I'm welcome just not too. that. Um, no? I'm no. not that forgiving. So um, yeah. if somebody took my parents from me, um, I, I don't. I could never forgive them. So I just, you know, I mean, that's just not one of my really good qualities because well and then when they wanted to do yeah. it with the dog i'm like they're just on a roll anytime somebody's uh you're not not contributing to society other than um like giving you wisdom in their presence when you're having a meal with them um they should go give me a break my dad was participating right. in calls and talks with us and giving us advice every single day till he died that's right until that day so yeah. um thank you so much for coming on tonight that um i hope we've reached thank out to bringing reached the people Well, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with another tragic story about someone losing a loved one to hospice. Stay alert. Check the resources out. Contact me if you need to. And stay strong. We're here. Good night, everyone.